Hall of Fame Village Media and the Pro Football Hall of Fame present Football Heaven. Well, I want to see him took and pull this off. <laughs> you call him one take Corrigan. James was in the, on the, you know, the broadcast with me for years, and he promised me, he said, you know, if I make it to the bigs, I'm bringing you with me. <laughs> you know, when I get to the bigs, you will come with me. <laughs> <laughs> continue our exploration into the ever-changing media landscape in pro football. Today, we will be joined by two players who not only had amazing careers on the field, but they've also very successfully transitioned into the media. Hopefully, they'll give us their perspectives. Hall of Famers Dan Deerdorf and James Lofton. But first, Aditi, let's, let's go to John Kendall and see what he has for us this episode the individuals that cover the game i mean we have such a rich history and so we preserve that history here in canton ohio from uh spotting boards uh when you know from from the broadcast the play-by-play announcers or the color commentators you know this wooden piece i have uh over to my right is um actually a spotting board that red grange used when he transitioned from uh player to to commentator and you know he would use uh pieces of cork that he would slide into each of those holes that, that really just basically told him the numbers of the players in each position on the football field to this 2006 spotting board that Dick Enberg uh, gave to coach Dungy after their Super Bowl victory. Um, but you can see the amount of information that Dick would put on his spotting board and could tell you, you know, if, uh, you know, Marvin Harrison's catching a pass. He's got all that information related to Marvin Harrison on there uh, to, to communicate back to, to the fans. Um, one of the things I wanted to, to, to bring Joe in to talk about a little bit is uh, this radio headset. This was uh, Buffalo Bill's longtime commentator, Van Miller. And uh, he was, at the time, I think the longest uh, tenured radio announcer for a single team, I think 37 seasons. And Joe, I know you've uh, spent a lot of time in the Buffalo organization and, and your father, I'm sure, uh, knew Van pretty well. Oh, we, we both knew Van really well. And was he was one of the first local radio or TV uh, personality that was presented with the Pete Rosell Award here at the Hall of Fame. Up till then, they'd all been nationally you know, uh, involved in the game. But Van was uh, just one of those guys that... Um, he, he, you know, you show the spotter board with all the notes. I'm not sure Van ever took a note. He knew every, it was all in his head. I mean, he was a remarkable guy. Uh, and for our listeners that don't know Van Miller by his name, if you know the name or the phrase, it's fandemonium, that came from Van Miller, which started uh, when, when the Bills were on their Super Bowl run and they were tearing down the goalposts, literally. And that's what he called it when the fans took the field. It's fandemonium. And that's been used in every NFL film's uh, presentation of uh, highlights uh, for whatever reason. But that's that's Van Miller. And in a lot of other voices, he did a lot of voiceover with the, with NFL films that uh, you would recognize his voice. And you may not recognize his name, but was a great, great, great guy behind the mic. Joe, is that well, a speak- voice that an entire generation of Buffalo, what do you call people from Buffalo? Buffalonians. Buffalonians? <laughs> Is that a voice that... It sounds like a, a lunch meat, doesn't it? <laughs> well, better than I think Pittsburghers. Or... <laughs> well, that sounds like a lunch meat, too. <laughs> <laughs> but is, 
I want to call him Vaughn, is Van Miller's Van. voice. Yeah, a voice that an entire generation or two generations of Buffalonians would recognize anywhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. And, and they would recognize him, too, because he was very high profile in the, uh, in the community, always answered the bell for any event, liked to MC events. Um, and he was kind of Joe Namath. He walked around in a, in a fur, a long, full-length fur coat, which initially they made fun of, but eventually it became his trademark. Did every team have a radio voice yeah. that carried a generation, like a Myron Colt, sure. like a... Every team, all 32. I, I think there's, there has been, you know, um, obviously, if you're, if, you're, if you're looking at some of the teams that maybe during some droughts, they did something, changed a network contract. You know, it, it really depends on your radio contract, uh, who you get for your, for your uh, voice. But some have actually, you know, jumped from a radio, one radio station to the other just to do that, um, that play-by-play call or color commentator. Wouldn't that be funny if you had someone with a Boston accent being the voice of the Dallas Cowboys? <laughs> if you had somebody with a Boston accent in Buffalo, they would turn the radio off. <laughs> Fair point. What else do you have for us, John? Well, Joe mentioned NFL films, and if you want to talk about who changed the NFL, you know, media landscape, you know, I, I don't know that you could think of a, a, a bigger uh, or or better um, media outlet than than NFL films. And so these Red Sox down here are actually Ed Sable's Red Sox. He was famous for, you know, we talked about Van Miller wearing the fur coat. He was, uh, you know, known for wearing that fur coat around town. Well, Ed Sable, the founder of NFL films, he was known for wearing Red Sox with any outfit that he had. And so uh, when he was enshrined here in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, uh, uh, his family donated uh, Red Sox that, that he wore. Um, and then last but not least, um, we have this, this mic and the mic flag here, ABC Sports. This was Leslie Vissers um, when uh, she brought, um, roamed the sidelines in 1995 as the, the first uh, female um, uh, to interview on the sidelines there. So, uh, you know, a, a wide spectrum of, of different media related artifacts, but some tremendously important artifacts as they relate to the history of not only media, but, but professional football and the national football league. Leslie Visser is an icon mentor friend of mine. And, uh, she did a lot more than just interview people. Oh. <laughs> I, I saw your eyes light up when John mentioned her name, and, he, and, and she's a remarkable woman. She really is. Uh, but the other thing, you know, I, John talking about Ed Sable, uh, you know, you can now say that the Pro Football Hall of Fame has the Red Sox in it. <laughs> Wait a minute, should the guy from Buffalo be saying that? <laughs> you proud know, about that? No, I don't know. You know, it sounds a little awkward. You know, baseball in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. No. It's not baseball. It's it's you know when we talked about Edger and James Hare, you know I you know it's kind of interesting that we would end up with like somebody's socks. You know, so <laughs> that might be in there with the unusual artifacts of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. If I ever get to a point to give you something, I will not give you my socks. <laughs> okay, Joe, I'm not sure that this gentleman really needs an introduction. He's obviously a Pro Football Hall of Famer. He is someone that for a long time was your radio partner. But I think if we put him on the spot, James Lofton will say 
traveling with me for TV broadcasts is actually more fun. Well, I can guarantee it. It's more fun than being on a radio show with me. So. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I, I would tend to give both of you equal billing. Oh. So you have been highlights in my broadcasting careers. Oh, my, my, my. You know, I must owe him some money or something. I'm not quite sure where that came from. I, I think James is only saying that because I'll be willing to share whatever bottle he wants to buy. If it's champagne, if it's Prosecco. Yes, it although James doesn't drink Prosecco, I believe. I will at times. At times, at times. Well, James, let, let's just jump right into this. When you were playing, were you actively thinking about post career jumping to the other side? I mean, because um, the media was the other side, right? They were the bad guys. Well, I, I don't know if they were thought of as the bad guys, because if you go back to 1978, when, when I came into the National Football League, um, there was no ESPN. I don't know if the NFL Network was even a dream of somebody that they would wake up in the middle of the night and go, oh, that'd be a great idea for us to have our own channel. And when you looked at pregame shows, they were maybe a half an hour in length. And the highlights for the, for the league really were built around Howard Cosell's highlights. And as a player in the league, you would watch Monday Night Football to see if you were going to get a national highlight because everything else was just local television. Yeah, that's true, James. And, you know, the, for those of you who aren't as familiar with James Lawson as we are, James' playing career transcended through three decades. <laughs> all, all or a Pro Bowl performer in each of the decades. You know, I think you're the only guy that made the Pro Bowl in three different decades. Isn't that correct? I think that's a good place to start, even if it's not. <laughs> well, and I wonder, James, from the, from that perspective, what were your as a player your media obligations throughout the week? So you talk about media obligations. I, I can't remember if the locker room was open one day during the week for the local beat writers. Uh, those guys I knew pretty well, Cliff Crystal and, and other guys who were in the Green Bay area, Vernon Beaver uh, was our photographer that we would see occasionally. So early on in my career, the only time that you really thought about the media was post-game. They would come into the locker room and they would ask you questions you put on a towel, you'd stand in front of your locker and you, you'd answer questions for five or 10 minutes. And that was really it. Um, the, one of the big highlights early in my career, Bart Starr had a TV show. So if you got invited to the, onto the Bart Starr show, that was a big deal because there was some Western store that you got a $25 gift certificate for. So you were excited <laughs> about doing that. But in terms of thinking about being in the media and how people got into the media, that that was maybe one of the furthest things away from my mind, the first half of my NFL career. So then what, you studied engineering. What made you say, okay, when I'm finished, I'd like to actually try my hand at that media thing. And was it calling games? Was it, what was the first thought in your mind when you considered that? Well, if you, if you think about the engineering that I studied in the mid-70s, computers were as big as your spare bedroom. And they got smaller and smaller and smaller. And my uh, ability to understand what was going on with computers got smaller and smaller and smaller <laughs> as I got away from that field. 
But about the middle of my career, I had a chance in Green Bay to have a TV show. So I had the James Lofton show starting in 1983 and 1984 here in Green Bay. And so that was my first time ever really on television, interviewing players who had been on my team, thinking about content for a show during the course of the week. So that was the first time I ever thought about it, but it really wasn't something that I was thinking post-career. I didn't know if I wanted to stay in football. I hadn't really thought about it. If I wanted to be a coach, if I wanted to work in personnel. So those things were still on the table. And, and I was really just actively pursuing my playing career more so than thinking about my post-playing career. You know, James, John asks a great question. He asked about your media obligations in the 70s when you first came in. How did that change or what was the biggest change when you got to that third decade that you were a pro bowler, the 90s? And when you think about it now, what's the biggest change now from even then? I would think the the biggest change for me is my capacity as a player. I went from being the guy to when I went to Buffalo, I was one of the guys. So there wasn't this big media clamoring. There, there was a pecking order. You let's Can we get Jim Kelly in? Can we talk to Bruce Smith? Can we talk to Thurman Thomas? Does Andre Reid want to talk to us? And somebody goes, well, James Lofton had a big game four weeks ago. No, we don't need him. He, he, <laughs> he won't, be, won't be anything. So that, that really changed because as I look at it now, who do we want when we're going into a production meeting? We want the head coach, either the offensive or defensive coordinator. We definitely want the quarterback. And then we want a guy who is a good guy to talk to, who's one of the prominent players. And then we want maybe a splash player, a young player who's had a good game or two, and we want to feature him in our conversation with him, or somebody who's done something newsworthy. So you're, you're looking for all of those. And while I was in Buffalo for four years, I was never, never, never brought into a pre-production meeting. Gentlemen, let me interrupt for just a second. First, I need to tell James, when I was a beat writer, the people that I most enjoyed talking to were the ones that didn't play the most. The backup quarterback was always the best source. The older veteran receiver, they had more time to explain things. So pox on that Buffalo media, not recognizing. Where were you when I needed you? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But here, okay, so Joe, John. James is talking about production meetings, and I've been so fortunate to have gotten to do five or six of them this year in my capacity as a sideline reporter at CBS. We are sitting in a production meeting with Yale-educated Mike McDaniel, and James Lofton somehow gets him to be talking about freshman year tests that you have to take, and James pulls out a story about the blue book and calculus. I don't so those well, production meetings, yes, you, you, you got, need to you've get got to find some some common ground <laughs> right. so that that you're just not asking them football questions because they're going to be defensive. They're going to answer the way that the head coach has taught them to answer those questions. And once you get somebody talking a little bit, you, their personality comes out, and that's what I want to see in meetings because that personality is part of what drives them as a football player. Are they an introvert? Are they an extrovert? Are they a guy who wants to pull the whole team together? Or are they solely focused on their job? And um, so that, that's one of the interesting things about being in the media. But I just look at how how everywhere I'm, I'm the president, the media is now a days because it is a total cycle. It's social media. 
and it's the players conducting their their own media. And I first witnessed that the last year I was working with Westwood One. At the end of the broadcast of the Super Bowl, we, along with the uh, broadcast partner who is broadcasting the, the TV version of the Super Bowl, we have the first access to the players after the game is over. And the very first, the very last game I'm doing, it's with the Patriots. They've won the game. And so I'm running out there with my Westwood One microphone trying to interview guys. And they're going, wait a minute, I have to do this for my podcast. So they have other obligations that they've already tapped into. And so that's the change of the media. The players have now taken the media and made it part of what they do, not part of what is being done to them. And it's not even their podcast, James. They're pulling their phones out oh, yeah, yeah, on yeah. Instagram live before, well, see, like, you know. Like, that, that's right. the old person in me. I'm going to podcast because that's the best I know. Yeah, the Instagram and, and everything else that they're doing live at that moment kind of supersedes other things that they're not getting paid for. I like the fact that the, the players have taken control over a lot of things that are involved in, with what they do. Um, I remember Ahmad Rashad talking years ago, and Ahmad had had a huge presence in the NBA. And he said the difference with in the NBA and the difference in the NFL is that in the NBA, the players are kings. And in the NFL, the coaches are kings. And now that sh is shifting a little bit. And, and in terms of being kings, it used to be where the, the coaches made more money than the players. But how many players on an NFL roster make more money than their head coach? I, I would say on most teams, it's probably at least half a dozen who make more money than their head coach. So, And when it comes time to fire somebody, the head coach is normally shown the door before your great quarterback or your elite pass rusher or that number one receiver is shown the door. So they have a little more power, but they have to wield it, I think, in a certain way where they, they can be still be part of the team as opposed to just being individuals. Because I think even when you go down that rabbit hole as a media person promoting yourself, you can't forget that you're on a team. James was one of those guys that was setting records almost weekly in Buffalo. That's why he was so endeared to the fans there. The fans were so endeared to him. Uh, you know, he, you know, he was talking about not once to get invited to a production meeting or that forget all that. He was a fan favorite. <laughs> this is a guy that came in, you know, and, and again, I really, this is true. Uh, he came in and he was the missing link to a team that was on the cusp of being great. And all of a sudden we got James Lofton, you know, stretching the defense and, you know, it was just, uh, it was a great time. It's very similar to the time, the, the, you know, the spirit of Buffalo right now in these days that, uh, that occurred when James was there, the, the Super Bowl runs. So to, to kind of further what, what Joe is saying, when I got to Buffalo, I'm there the first year, the second year, I end up playing four years there. And then the third year, I start to get a little exposure doing radio. So I'm doing a little weekly radio hit with one of the local stations and, and trade for uh, some rent of furniture that they're giving me for the apartment that we're living in. And then the next year, I have a television show. And the year prior to that, I had gone with my agent to New York to kind of talk about and to explore broadcasting after I finished playing. So I go into a meeting with one of the networks and they say, well, well, what have you done? And I said, well, you know, I had the James Lofton show back in 1983 and 84, and now it's 1991. And they said, well, that's, that's a long time ago. We need to see something a little more current that you've done. So, okay. So I kind of filed that away, go back to Buffalo. 
And the next year I have the James Lofton show. And it's kind of like the David Letterman show because I start backstage. I walk down, down a uh, aisle hallway and then I come out and I do a 90 second monologue. Van Miller, who is the voice of the Buffalo Bills and the number one broadcast sports broadcaster in Buffalo is my Ed McMahon. He's sitting on a couch with me. So I have these shows and we, we go to the Super Bowl. So I have 21 half hour shows. I do an hour long Christmas special on the um, set of It's a Wonderful Life, which was a theater show that was playing in downtown Buffalo. So after the season's over, I'm really excited because I'm going to contact this broadcasting network to tell them that I have these 21 shows, that I have an hour uh, Super Bowl special on a, on a Christmas set. And they say, do you want me to send you these shows? They say, well, we really don't need to see the work. We just need to know you've done it. So that was, <laughs> I thought that was great because what it, what it tells you is that they want to know that you're comfortable in front of the camera or that you can be yourself. They really don't want to examine your work because they're looking for high profile names. And after that season was over, I finished playing and I do get a job at CNN and we do have a show called NFL preview. And like I said, at the time in the early nineties, that was a half hour show. They came on an hour before the kickoff of the NFL uh, season. We were on at noon the Eastern Game started at one and everybody else had an hour show. All the big networks had just an hour, if you can imagine that, to talk about what was going to transpire that weekend. James, of all the guys that you've gotten to meet with over the last few years in production meetings, is there someone that jumps at you that you could see making that same transition? Is there someone oh, you'd like to see? There are guys all the time. And and it's it's funny because you you think to yourself, do I have the radio FM voice? And 99% of the guys who are coming out of football don't have that voice. The guy who has a deep, kind of almost scratchy, but has great personality and is one of the biggest humans I've ever seen, Calais Campbell. And I'm watching him and I'm going, you know what? Because what I realized in this game, I love the fact that the analysts who are in the game are from multiple positions and you have a different set of eyes. You're seeing the game a little differently than somebody else sees it. So I, I think that's important. And I, I think Calais Campbell jumps out at me because of his size, his personality, and just the fact that he's somebody who treats people really well. You notice that about him. And I think that's important in this business. And he also doesn't think too much of himself because if you're full of yourself and you go on the air, I think that's a big turnoff to people. For sure. Do you get asked about it a lot? You know, we see at practice guys asking you about when you played and routes <laughs> and things like that. Do people ask you about the TV side? Now they're asking me, did you play? <laughs> so they're you, asking you, you about your brilliant sideline reporter, right? You get that a little bit, but <laughs> I, I think the guys that I'm talking to, it's, it's that transition. How do you get over that transition? Because I, I think that if you're a guy who's going to play two or three years, you spend about two or three more years trying to get back into the league. Whether you're on somebody's roster during the offseason, you, you cut at the end of training camp, you still think that you can physically play. When, when I was a rookie, we had a tight end in Green Bay by the name of Rich McGeorge. And traditionally, they would take the rookies to – 
this little bar in De Pere, Wisconsin called Nikki's. And while we're at that little bar, we've been in training camp for about two weeks. Rich McGeorge looks at me and says, every player becomes an ex-player. I haven't even played a preseason game. And all of a sudden, he's planted that seed in my mind. And, and that was 45 years ago that he said that to me. Every player becomes an ex-player. And I think for most of the players, it's that unknown. What do you pursue? Where do you live? Because you, you grew up, you went to high school in one place. You go to college in another. If you have a 10-year career in the NFL, you probably play in three different locations. So where is home? Is it, is it where your, your spouse is from? Is it where you went to college? Is it where you grew up? I think that's one of the tough things for NFL players to, to kind of adjust to. We are being joined by a football media legend as well as a Pro Football Hall of Famer. And there aren't many in the Pro Football Hall of Fame that carry the same credentials as Dan Deerdorf does into his post-playing career as a member of the media. Dan, welcome to our podcast. It is my pleasure to be here, and uh, I hope all, everybody's well. Everybody here is well. And, you know, Dan, I don't want to, you know, recap your entire career in, a, in an introduction. Oh, go ahead. So, uh, you know, we'd have to make three shows, three episodes. I'm tired of hearing it. <laughs> well, you know what's a good question to ask Dan's? Do you wish that PFF was around when you were playing? Do I wish what was around? Pro football focus, such oh. that we knew how many pancakes you had and oh. how many sacks you allowed, which I'm sure was zero. And well, it's, uh, yeah, um, I'm sure that if I would have been happy with the result, I would have said, wow, this is a great organization. <laughs> if I was unhappy, my response would have been, what do you expect from a bunch of minions sitting around uh, – uh, who don't know anything about football and they're just looking for a better job. And this is what they're doing in the interim. So, <laughs> you know, you, I would probably I would be somewhere in between. You, you know, you define something there though, too, Dan, you know, when that's how players like yourself would have thought in the sixties and seventies and eighties about, you know, the non experienced media you know you're saying well what does he know about offensive line play other than who got called for holding you know right, right. and so as Aditi asked you know uh, well with us here just sort of throw this at you all yeah. right let's we're talking about pff okay if if that's anthony munoz sitting there uh grading my performance well yep. then that's one thing but that's right it's not. <laughs> okay, well, Dan, do you remember? Do you remember feeling that way as a player? Do you remember questioning the credentials of the people that were writing about you, or talking about you on the radio, or asking um, you questions in a locker room? Well, first of all, you have to understand something. When when I was a player, uh, which was basically the decade of the '70s, we didn't have the proliferation of media that we have now. There was no ESPN. There was no 24 hours a day breakdown of every piece of minutia that, and when they run out of minutia, then, then they really move off into the stratosphere. <laughs> I know that you did some NFL games for CBS prior to Monday night football, but if we think about your start at Monday night football in 1987 with Al Michaels, 
who's still, of course, going. Right. And we go to when you finally said, okay, traveling every single week is enough, 2013, with, I believe, Greg Gumbel. Was there a difference in the way you called games? From 1987 to 2013, did viewers want something different from you? Um, that's a really, I've, I've never really looked at how different it was. Uh, it's always different when you're in a three-man booth. Uh, uh, so uh, the three-man booth is uh, both a blessing and a, and a curse. It, 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 it's a curse in a really highly competitive football game. Because as an analyst, when you're in a three-man booth, I only have half the job. You know, Frank Gifford and I shared a job. Al was the only play-by-play announcer, but Frank and I shared a job, which meant that I didn't talk after every play. We kind of took turns, and and so... Would you elbow him, though? If you really had something to say, would you tell him, <laughs> well, hey, we, hype down here? We just had... We had body language where if one of us... We, we knew. I mean, it just... Yeah, no, we didn't. We didn't physically uh, uh, smack each other around, but you know. It, but the point is that it was. I viewed it. It was kind of like guerrilla warfare. Uh, you were behind a tree. You jumped out. You took your shot, and you jumped back behind the tree because you weren't. You couldn't get a flow going because you. After the next play it was his turn to talk, and no matter what I wanted to say, it wasn't relevant anymore. So. Um, there was a, a certain way to broadcast in a three-man booth on Monday Night Football, and that's the way it was. Then when I went back to CBS, John Madden, in many ways, had changed uh, the way all of us uh, broadcast uh, uh, football. And, and, and it became more technical. It became because the, the viewing audience was more educated and into the nuances of the game. They understood more about uh, blocking schemes and coverages and, and, and whatever. So, yeah, I think we, uh, uh, if there was a, a change as the years went by, we all got a little more technically oriented in our, in our deliveries. Dan, as you look back, are there other things that you think really changed in the way you analyze the game and the way you broadcast the game? And through all those decades of doing it, um, you know, not really. In other words, uh, the the technological advances, you know, the the sky cams, and you know, it's it sounds goofy to say that I predated that, but but I did. <laughs> but it was, uh, uh, yeah. Hey, I remember when we had. I remember on Monday night. We, we had a big uh, philosophical argument about whether to put the, uh, the score bug on the screen. Uh, you know, it used to be that we had nothing on the screen except football. That's right. And, you know, there was competing schools of thought. Why, why, you know, why should we put a continuous score bug up there? Because why would you want to advertise that the score of the game is 35 to 7? Because... That means someone that, I mean, that's just an invitation to tune out. Yep. And ultimately that's where we went. And I'm just saying all of these things happened on my watch while I was doing games. And it got to the point at the end where uh, at least 
um, at least I never worked at ESPN where we had crawlers continually going on underneath. At least at CBS, we were just doing football. Well, that, that does beg the question, though, as you talk about more cameras. I've had the conversation, Dan, with officials who've said their job has gotten harder the more and more high-definition 4K, 8K cameras there are because it used to just be their eyes and their eyes alone. Right. And now everybody at home is seeing 500 views in high def of what they had a split second to see. So I, from your angle, I better or worse. I came at it from another direction with the officials. I really tried to take the time to explain how often they are right. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I think more often than not, all these high definition angles that you're talking about, they prove what a pretty good job these guys are doing. Right. I mean, some of the calls they make, yes, uh, they're corroborated by a super slow-mo, but they didn't see it in super, uh, super slow-mo. And right. a lot of times you got to give them, I, I tried to give them credit for making a damn good call when they did. But did you like having more cameras available to you? Or was it simpler to call the game when there wasn't a pylon cam and a slow-mo and a this and a that? Well, some camera angles are conducive to being an analyst because they really show you uh, you know, something that you could educate the viewer with. If you're, if you're a close-up of a guy's face for 50 yards as he's running, that can be compelling television. I mean, that can really, but from an analyst perspective, what are you supposed to do? I mean, <laughs> he's got pretty eyes. You can't tell <laughs> straight over it. You can't. That's right. Wow. Doesn't he have a great complexion? I mean, you would. So it depends. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes having 30 cameras covering a football game is not the analyst's best friend that you might think it is. In the, in the interest of full uh, transparency, you are a Canton native <laughs> and spent, grew up here. Uh, so, you know, you have memories of the Hall of Fame, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, starting with the breaking, uh, the, the groundbreaking in 1963. Yes. Tell us a little bit about how you remember the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton. Joe, I think that groundbreaking was in 1962. Two, it actually was. <laughs> yes, it was. The, the grand opening was 63. The That's exactly was right. You're exactly right. Um, you know, I, 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 I know some people have heard it before, but you know, I was 13 years old in 1962, and I was standing there with my father, and we watched the groundbreaking. And Joe, you know I wasn't the old, only Hall of Famer there, was I? No, you weren't. Uh, Alan Page was there. Alan Page actually worked on the with the construction crew that helped build the building. And and also, I believe Larry Zonka was there. That's correct. That's and, correct. He came down and, from Stowe. Yeah, and and so uh, I only lived, I only lived a mile from the hall, and uh, I used to ride my bike down there while it was being constructed you know the rotunda the football mm -hmm. uh, you know when that was being built 
uh, I'd never seen a roof line quite like that. And it, <laughs> it took me a while to try to figure out what the heck that was. <laughs> I, we still haven't. <laughs> I, used to, <laughs> I used to walk through it while it was under construction. Uh, uh, I went to every enshrinement, every Hall of Fame game until I started uh, uh, playing in the NFL. And uh, so, yes, I, uh, I probably have a... a a different place in my heart for the Hall of Fame than most everyone else who's been enshrined there. It was growing up in Canton, Ohio, you realize that, that the Hall of Fame is just woven into the DNA of every Canton resident uh, uh, for the last 75 years. James, you've been to Canton a lot of times. Yeah. Sure. yeah. And, and you know, obviously, we tell all of our Hall of Famers, this is your second home. Do you have any story about visiting Canton or being in Canton you'd like to share? Well, I, I think one of the great things for me is I grew up in a single parent family and my dad was the single parent and I was the youngest of four kids. So all the other kids are out of the house and I'm about nine or 10 years old and we're sitting there watching a game on our big black and white television. And my dad says, we're watching the Browns. And he says, they're talking about Jim Brown. And he goes, well, you know, he's no Marion Motley. Now, a nine-year-old has never heard of Marion Motley. <laughs> Didn't know Marion Motley's name from anybody. But when I finally went to Canton, I got to see who Marion Motley was. Number 76 for the Cleveland Browns. A great running back. And somebody that Joe knows that when we did our radio program and I asked Jim Brown about him, Jim Brown reverted to like a 15-year-old kid talking about how he adored Marion Motley and how, how much it meant for him to go to the Cleveland Browns because of players like Marion Motley. So when you go to Canton, you have that history, and it just seeps into you. And so I was standing there in front of Marion Motley's bust and looking at his uniform going, this is what my dad was talking about, and it was just so special for me. Visit Canton and experience Hall of Famers' hometown favorites for yourself. Plan your trip to America's playing field. If you enjoyed today's episode, please, please check out the Hall's other exciting podcast, The Mission. Introducing the HOFV Pass 2023, your ticket to the Hall of Fame Village, a world-class sports and entertainment destination situated around the Pro Football Hall of Fame Museum in Canton, Ohio. The Hall of Fame Village Pass is a limited run of digital collectibles. Owners receive exclusive access to events, promotions, discounts, specials, and more. Get your HOFV Pass at hofvpass.com. For more Football Heaven episodes and bonus content, please visit Hall of Fame Village Media and Pro Football Hall of Fame social media.